0: Welcome to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we typically talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and in Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. Mariah, this is our last episode before the holidays it's a little bittersweet because I'm not going to get to talk to you for a little bit, but yeah, it is. We have a very exciting guest today. It's, I I like to think of it as a, a, a holiday special episode, but yeah, just wanted to say happy holidays to you and to everybody else out there.
1: Yeah, happy holidays. I know you and I are very excited about our guest. Uh, When we first kicked off the podcast, we were both hoping that he would be our holiday special guest for the year. And so, yeah, let's get into it. We had former councillor Scott McKean on. And if you don't know him, he sat on council for eight years for Ward 6, uh, which was centralized around the downtown. He also spent 24 years at the Edmonton Journal, including eight years at his hometown newspaper columnist. And while on council, he advocated for our most vulnerable population with his mental health and urban isolation initiative through affordable housing and harm reduction strategies. He also supported walkable, bikeable, livable downtown with the approved 102 Ave Bike Lanes the Reimagine Jasper uh, revitalization project, as well as pushing EPS on more enforcement for noisy cars and motorcycles. And from my personal viewpoint, and as someone who lives downtown, he really focused on complete communities that work for many people. we will hear more about that in the episode.
0: Absolutely. The noisy cars and motorcycles is, that hits home for me. I used to live downtown as well on 103rd Street and lots of concrete buildings. And that was right next to where the motorcyclist kind of did their, or started their loop so i'm a fairly heavy sleeper it didn't bother me that much but my brother lived with me at the time and he's a very light sleeper and he struggled at first when we moved in there because of motorcycle loops and how noisy that was so uh you know reducing those speed limits down and working with eps on more enforcement it raised the value of my uh, my condo a little bit. So I, I definitely appreciate all the work he did on that.
1: For everyone's info, this episode is very Edmonton-focused. And so we want to talk to you about a couple things before we get into the conversation. First, we reference the Talisdomes. It is a piece of artwork on the Quinnell Bridge uh, by Fox Drive. The artwork uh, reminds people of the landscape that was altered by the bridge and the ridges uh, and the controlled construction that meets the needs of the travelers and the obstacle that the river faced. Um, And so it refers to the coexistence of man-made and natural coming together as one. Now, I didn't write that. Uh, I believe the artist wrote it. I think it's very beautiful. But my favorite thing about that project is that it looks super out of place. It's big. It's sparkly i like sparkly things and it is my favorite art piece in edmonton i just wish it was closer to where i live
0: (laughs) favorite art piece in edmonton that's a that's a really hot take it is probably the most controversial art piece in the city would you say
1: it is definitely the most controversial art piece in the city it uh so the city of edmonton has a public art policy Uh, So 1% of a project is supposed to go to uh, art, which it never does. It always gets super slashed. And then it also has to be located next to whatever the project was. So that bridge was tied into uh, where the artwork was. And I, in a previous life, I tried to get that to be decoupled. Someone else will take up that charge and we'll get art all around the city. So anyways, that's a long random story that doesn't need to go into today. (laughs)
0: The other uh, couple things that we want to talk about uh, for your info is the we talk in the episode about the Stanley Mil- Milner Makerspace. Now, Stanley Milner is the, the library downtown in Edmonton. It's been redesigned and rebuilt over the last couple of years, and it looks like people have called it the battle tank. Uh, it's also a controversial piece of art, I would say. Um, but the Makerspace is not. The Makerspace is legit. It's a complete kind of space for pretty much anything you would want they have a like a 3d printing studio digital conversion so if you have like old vhs or films or photographs floppy disks whatever you got and you want to convert it into something digital they have that they have recording studios uh computers for programming they have stuff for you know jewelry and clothing making they have tons of stuff in there it's it's a really cool space um i definitely recommend anybody goes and checks it out if they uh if they have some time absolutely so yeah the maker space in the stanley Milner library is uh is pretty cool
1: yeah so weird and wonderful space so let's get into today's episode Well, welcome everyone. Uh, We have an amazing guest with us, which you'll have heard in the intro. Counselor Scott McKean, who has just stepped back from being active counselor, probably not the right way to say that, but uh, we are so happy to have him here today. He has helped transform our downtown. He has moved big files, uh, like things around houselessness, and I don't know how we got him. I don't know why he took this call, but we are so happy to have him. Welcome so much, Councilor McKean.
2: Thank you. It's uh, great to be here, Mariah.
1: Well, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about what made you run for council.
2: So I got to tell you, so I, I, worked at the M2 Journal for 24 years and I covered everything from crime to environment to oh, a million other things when I was a general assignment reporter. So I did a lot of different stuff, but I but about half the time I was at the journal, either as a reporter or the civic affairs columnist, uh, I about half the time. So 12 years roughly I covered City Hall. And when you get a front row seat to it and it's daily, a couple of things happened to me over time was A I realized how critically important civic government was in the lives uh, of Edmontonians. So the federal government, provincial government have real import, obviously, but it's civic government that shapes so much of our, you know, our daily lives and, and our opportunities for recreation. It's just all roads led to City Hall, I found. Council might have been dealing with a uh, something at the uh, water treatment plant, Or the Edmonton Oilers were in there or something. You know, it was all over the map. And I found that really interesting. And secondly, I was struck by, at some point in my life, so 2002 to 2010, I wrote that column, which I really enjoyed. It, It was a step away from reporting. When you're a reporter, and the Edmonton Journal was very sort of strict about this, you had to take a step back from the community. So even things like being your community league president was frowned upon. You would not have a position that would put you in the news in any way at all. So you step back from what's going on in your community in a lot of ways. And over time, I realized that I wrote about people doing things and I'd never done anything. And that really sort of began to bother me that... Um, I wasn't a contributor that, you know, I mean, you could argue that journalism is integral to a community, to a democracy, and that's true. But there were people out getting their hands dirty all the time, doing hard work. And I wasn't doing that. I was writing about them. Funny thing, though, was there was a, uh, it was Jerry Nackvie, a name you might know from Cameron Developments. He was at a council meeting, Probably 2009, 2010, just before I left the journal. And he came up to me and he said, you should run for council. You'd be a great councillor. And I'll have to dig up the column sometime. Fortunately, no, nobody who ran against me dug up the column because I made mock of what a terrible city councillor I'd be. For I don't even remember the number of reasons, but they were probably fairly good and fairly true. But then when I, the journal was downsizing, was going through rounds and rounds of buyouts, and I could see the writing on the wall, so I took a buyout. And at about the same time, I was contacted by a group of fairly engaged Edmontonians who wanted me to run for council. So in 2010, I ran for council against... uh, Tony Katarina. I was late in the in the in getting going, but we did ran a pretty good campaign and I lost. And uh was feeling sorry for myself for a little while. It's a crappy job. You gotta go out and pick up signs, right? That is not fun. And it was like all my volunteers had disappeared, so I was left sort of picking up these signs. But one day, as I was doing that, this light bulb went off above my head. So we had parked Vespa scooters out in front of the campaign office during the campaign and stuff and I just realized it was like I was not their guy I was not their guy it doesn't mean you know because it can feel a bit like a popularity contest right they don't like me is a reaction you can have to that and can be a little hard on your self-esteem but I, I sort of shrugged that off with that thought I just wasn't their guy wasn't sure I'd ever run again Started started my own sort of freelance company, and then started to get bugged again about running. This time in in uh, Ward Six, as it was then called, because I'd ran in Ward Seven against Tony Ward, I knew pretty well because I'd written about Alberta Avenue and stuff a lot. But Ward Six was where I lived, but it contained the downtown, and I was a little intimidated, to be honest. And I had to be talked into it, and I ran in two thousand and thirteen, and lo and behold. I won. That was a long way of saying I decided to finally get involved. And by the way, after I lost in 2010, I joined a million boards Downtown Community League, Edmonton Mennonite Center for Newcomers, Lieutenant Governor Circle on Mental Health and Addiction, and a couple of others. And it was just like, that was a bit of a mistake. Going from not engaged at all to super engaged was a bit much. But But I met a lot of people and I really enjoyed it and became, you know, a mental health advocate, which I carried on uh, on my years on council.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that transition um, from two angles. The first angle would be going from covering City Hall to being covered at City Hall. What was um, what was that like?
2: I have a strong memory of coming out of the bunker, the uh, room behind City council chambers into lights and a and a row of cameras, and they wanted to talk to me, and I burst out laughing. I just <laughs> thought it was so ridiculous. Um, but you know, I was really comfortable with it, and i i I was not intimidated by it. I think you know, a new a new councillor or a new politician can be really intimidated by that, and I I knew how it worked. The only thing was. I kind of sucked at it in a way. I used to, I remember telling Counselor Brian Anderson one time, Brian, they just want you to speak passionately and briefly. Because Brian couldn't answer a question in anything but like 20 minutes. I realized after time I was really blah, 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 really verbose in my answers too. So I, I talked to the, to the media about it though. And they said, ah, that's okay. We just... We just cut out what we don't need. So they seem fine with it. But yeah, it was, and there was a couple of times when I knew, I knew what they'd done when they'd really colored a story or used a really sort of sensational angle or something. So a few of them got shit from me. You know, what happens though is, and it, it was an old complaint I'd heard a number of times. You know, you give an answer that's fairly nuanced or has a few couple of paragraphs to it and they only use the one paragraph. And I remember uh, Elise Stolte and I would have uh, numerous conversations. And um, she made me sound like I didn't give a shit about homeless people one time in my answer. And I was really mad at her. That one really struck a chord with me. But she was good. Like, she's very bright and good at it. But, you know, it's a daily newspaper. And sometimes those folks are doing two or three stories a day. It's not perfect. It's a bit of sausage making. And I understand all that too. So, and then, and then a, a, a TV reporter, they tend to be all over the place. They might be covering anything from, from arts to then, you know, go over to the city hall and interview with this guy on that. And so it's hard for them to become expert at anything. So I had some sympathy, and now the media, uh, I was probably, I was maybe cursed or blessed to be on council at the time when the media was not, it's, the coverage is not very strong. You know, it's, it's a shame. It's a real shame what's happened to the media because, you know, communities thrive in part because they know what's going on. You know, how are you going to know that there's a, I don't know, some event in your neighborhood or some event in the city that you'd dearly love to go to? I mean, there's still, you know, and sure, there's social media, but there's so much noise in the world today. I don't know how people pick out exactly what they need to hear, but... Maybe that's maybe that's just me being old school. I think newspapers and mainstream media had a real important function of reflecting the community back at itself. And and I think that's missing somewhat now, especially doing that with somewhat of some objectivity. uh, That was important. But again, I am old. So disregard everything I've just said.
1: You have made so much change over council. I don't know if you remember this, uh, our first meeting, but I interviewed for a couple of boards. It's funny that you talk about getting into boards. Uh, When I was in university, I went and interviewed for the the design board for the City of Edmonton uh, and then the transit board. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you and Mayor Iveson and... I believe it was Councillor Walters We're all sitting on the design committee and interviewed me. And then I went over and it was like the best experience. I was so nervous and you guys were just like a ball of laughter. Like we, <laughs> it was so fun. Uh, and then I went and interviewed on the transit advisory board and uh, Councillor Esslinger and uh, Councillor Sohi at the time. They were so serious and I thought for sure I had bombed it. But I guess I'd shown them how passionate I was about bus shelters and the need for more bus shelters in communities (laughs) (laughs) and got lucky on got to sit on the transit advisory board.
2: What a weird thing to be passionate about, but no, I get it. That's great.
1: (laughs) But but to tie it all in, you were talking about communication. I found out about those uh, board positions through the newspaper. Like, you need media, you need news. Otherwise, university kid i don't think i would have ever heard about them in any other way
2: yeah and i mean i miss c magazine too like i thought it was a really good sort of it had that sort of nice urban edge to it and a lot of arts and music and i might be doing some work on live music uh shortly and and that might be one of my journeys to find out the best sources that people can turn to to Find out what's going on locally. It's so hard in the middle of a pandemic to know exactly, you know, those sorts of opportunities to to enjoy your passions, whether it's music or or sports or something or movies. Anyways, pandemics uh, pandemics were the were the bane of my all of our existence. But being, a, it's probably one of the major reasons why I left city council. It just stripped the role of a lot of its joy and it just down to the grinding work of formal meetings and responding to grumpy constituents. And in the middle of a pandemic, guess what? They're scared. And when people are fearful, they're grumpy. And it was just like walking into this headwind of negativity every day sitting in this bloody little apartment of mine so uh, it wasn't a lot of fun and so i ran away
1: (laughs) ryan and i both have interacted with you at council and i've watched council meetings over the past year and a half two years and they were tough online council meetings in a pandemic they were tough people came with their emotions uh, and things that were happening outside And it seemed like it was a venting ground almost. And I don't know how you get away from that. But
2: One of the greatest blessings of the role is to have that title. It is truly a privilege to be a counselor. And what it involves is a lot of events where you're invited out to go speak at some small multicultural group's Annual general meeting or little festival or something, and you meet, get to meet people who you wouldn't otherwise have had the opportunity. Maybe doing their little thing or big thing, involving a lot of work to make the make Edmonton a, a better place, a more diverse place, a more fair and just place. And I just love that. It was a bit maybe, you know, a bit like being a journalist again and just getting out and meeting and people and seeing what's going on out there. So I just loved that. But then again, once the pandemic struck, that was all gone. So the the harder parts of the job were left and very little of that sort of real joyful thing. And I think it was mutually beneficial. I think you know, I would go into some of those events and it would feel a bit odd because it'd be like, oh my God, the counselor's here. And, you know, you get get treated. Well, there's this notion. I think it's absolutely true. Politicians get treated far too well and far too badly. You know, like it's in many ways, they're just folk. And hopefully they're in there for the right reason. But, you know, I remember being out with Mayor Mandela at the time we were going for lunch in Chinatown. And this group of people suddenly spots him and they're all freaking out. And they had to come over and talk to him for about 15 minutes. And we were walking away from that. And he said, you know, it's the title, right? And I went, excuse me? He says, it's not me. It's the title. And I went, yeah, yeah, I do sort of get that. Yeah. I mean, if it was just Stephen Mandel and he'd never run for mayor. He would have walked by those people completely anonymously, right? So um, there's a certain prestige, which is maybe too strong a word, um, you get from that role, which is lovely. And you get access to things that you wouldn't normally have, which is lovely. But it's a lot of work, a lot of hours, a ton of reading, a ton of email. And um, it's, it's a really, it's a grind. And, and I sometimes want to shake people that want to run for counsel. You know, 25-year-old guy who's just finished his arts degree or something wants to be a counselor, and I go, why? You know, first <laughs> of all, what do you what do you have to offer? Secondly, you have no idea. You think it'll be cool, it'll be cool to be a counselor. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, walking down the street and being stopped to take pictures or talked at by people that's kind of like what it's like walking down the street with Mariah as well. So she probably understands, but I want to actually go back to that workload question. Um, Mariah and I are, are fairly actively involved with, um, with the new council and, and kind of seeing their transition. It seems like the transition is steep and they throw you right into it uh, very quickly. Is that what you felt when, uh, when you started at council, did they give you enough transition time and support?
2: You know, it's helpful you know, all the uh, orientation they do is helpful but it's almost part of the overload too. When I was, uh, so at the Edmonton Journal, I've told this story a bunch of times to people. I was the cop, I was a cop reporter. And then they moved me to the environment beat. And there was, the guy had done the beat before me, had all this paper records of everything on various issues, you know? And I thought, well, I'm just going to spend, you know, maybe a couple weeks reading all this stuff, get a acclimated with the various issues in the environment beat and bless her heart, uh, Sheila Pratt, who was the managing editor, she said, nope, there's a press conference today, go. And so I just had to jump in, you know, jump in with both feet, learn as I went. And I think that's almost what it's really like. Is you're just gonna to have to stumble and scramble and read everything you can in the agendas and ask questions and and you're and it just takes. I don't, maybe I'm a slow learner, uh, but I think you know the idea that you can be oriented to the point where you're comfortable going into your first formal council or committee meetings. No. It's just a lot of work and a lot of understanding. I, and that's why I think a couple of them do have a leg up. And one of the reasons I was really thrilled to see Ann Stevenson get elected to to replace me is, you know, with her planning background, I think she's got sort of half of it. Half of it is understanding planning, maybe more even, you know. Um, when I first started in journalism, uh, there was a woman who came in to, sort of teach a couple of our classes, Fiona Daniels, she was the city clerk, city of St. Albert. And within about a year after I left McEwen for my journalism training, I ended up at the St. Albert Gazette and I was going to cover city hall. And Fiona, I always remember Fiona saying, Scott, it's all about planning. Learn that. So your focus in life and and the focus this podcast is critically important because planning, I think it's subtle i think in ways that i don't completely understand like my interest in you know how does how does urban design and planning affect mental health and isolation you know we have no isolation's a major issue in cities today and how do we grapple with that and i suspect one of the tools we can use is urban design and planning but you guys have to figure that out
0: Yeah, bless your heart. You didn't name my company by name there. But uh, I know you were talking about (laughs) me for sure. So yeah, you you mentioned that you were Yeah, you mentioned you were uh, intimidated by downtown before you started running. And then I think you became one of downtown's biggest advocates. How has downtown changed since you started uh, in council two terms ago?
2: Yeah, I was intimidated probably by the fact that, you know, the big, some of the big banks and corporations that we have, the head offices were downtown and I grew up in Northeast Edmonton. Uh, You know, I've, I've talked to people about having a sort of a wrong side of the tracks mentality you can live with for all your life. You can try to shrug it off, but I always have had that. So that was the intimidation. I wrote about downtown a lot when I was writing my civic affairs column. And I remember writing one time that I thought Edmonton's Main Street was probably the worst in Canada. I hadn't experienced them all, but I suspected that was true. And, and today, that ain't changed a lot. There's still a lot of work to do on Jasper Avenue. There's good news, though, I think with <clears throat> and it's one of the things I worked really hard on, and it, it took some finessing and arm twisting and strategy in the background, was to get that downtown park. Uh, I mean, I, I remember being early, early in my career on council, being in a meeting, got the mayor involved and the and the downtown planners, and to want to talk about this park, which I thought was critical. And Duncan Fraser and a couple others, I think from planning, were in there. I don't know if you know the name, Duncan's a fabulous guy, really strong advocate for the downtown. And I we were they were talking about I think they'd hired a company to try to start buying up land. And I just I remember saying, Well, why why don't we expropriate? It's a it's a legitimate public need and use. And they kind of looked at each other and the mayor, <laughs> mayor went, uh-huh. And so off they went to see if they could do that. And so that took a long time the land assembly for it. But I will be, the day that thing opens, I'll be really, I'll have a sense of personal pride about that. And I think it could have as big an impact on the downtown, a different impact, but as big an impact as, as Roger's Place. You know, as soon as that was, as soon as word got out that the city was assembling land for a park there, boom, 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 the developers were buying up land for towers, right? That's the kind of momentum along with LRT and our bike grid downtown that we were seeing pre-pandemic. And I must admit, I was a little pissed off at some of the comments from some of the mayoral candidates during the election about A, downtown being in crisis, or B, that there was way too much construction going on. I wanted to shake... That was Michael Oshry, and I would say, Michael, construction is investment, you know. Anyways, um, but they were all trying to get a leg up on who had the best ideas for downtown, and I think we were making some real headway. And then on the homeless front, which really reared its head during the pandemic because of the the major shelter in the Shaw Convention Center, that council, Iverson's councils, we worked damn hard and invested a lot of money. uh, And I'm not going to take credit for that. I think uh, the mayor and Michael Walters deserve a lot of credit. But anyways, we'll have five supportive housing facilities underway and they'll open it's supposed to be early 2022, hopefully the spring of 2022. And that'll be somewhere around 200, 250, 300 homeless people will now have a place to live and hopefully and be supported, you know, with supportive programs. So that will be significant for the downtown as well. You know, that'll be addition by subtraction of the side effects of this city's, I think, most troubling issue. And that's homelessness. So. I think we've made a lot of headway. I think the, the new owners of City Center Mall, their design and renovation will be critical because, unfortunately, you know, in the 80s and 90s, with the development of malls downtown, we screwed up the urban experience you seek when you go downtown. The urban experiences. That you have wandering along white avenue that disappeared from our downtown And we hid our vibrancy not just our retail and and hospitality we hid most of our people inside and 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 i was struck it was the year 2000 i went to new york uh had won a really nice journalism award and i got a week staying at the plaza in New York. But anyways, it was those sidewalks in New York. I just loved those sidewalks, right? Uh, I'm not sure I'd love that all the time if I lived there, but busy, busy, busy sidewalks. And then coming back to Edmonton, remember I was working out in a place that was around 103rd, 104th Street in Jasper. And I stepped out onto the sidewalk. It was probably 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it was tumbleweed. There was nobody on Jasper Avenue. And it's better now? with the residential towers that have come in but it's not where it needs to be yet we got a lot of work ahead of us but again i think we were really heading in the right direction pre-pandemic fingers crossed this will be temporary and coming out of this it'll be interesting to see how many people actually want to return to to a workplace, and how many companies accommodate that? Otherwise, we're going to have vacancy in our in our office buildings downtown, and that we'll have to deal with that. But we're going to have a really residential downtown compared to a lot of downtowns. I think that'll be fantastic because it means sidewalks won't roll up at five o'clock like they do in some cities. I was on Wall Street on a Sunday, and it was this, you know my, my description of Jasper Avenue earlier was the same thing. I was felt like I was the only person standing on Wall Street because it you know there was no reason to be there but in a in a city like ours with the residential towers we've already approved if they all get built and that parks there I think the next thing we need is probably at least a K to 6 school in the downtown create a really interesting neighborhood of urban experiences opportunities for recreation opportunities to meet other people and not be isolated in your apartment Anyways, I have real high hopes for the downtown, and the the LRT is going to bring in everybody from from the far west and the far southeast, so it'll be fantastic.
1: Yeah, well, as you know, uh, I'm a resident of downtown and a big believer in downtown, too. I've told Ryan this story before, but it was about 12 years ago, uh, my partner and I went to dinner downtown, and we were able to park right in front of the restaurant. There was... Not a lot of people around. Uh, we were able to get reservations the, like day of. Then about four or five years ago, I had some friends. They were complaining about not being able to park right out front, outside of where they were meeting me. They had to walk a block or two. Uh, oh, yeah. There was lots of people around, and I was like, "It's working. That's what we <laughs> that's what we want. We want more people." And even in Uh, In these hard times, I feel like running into friends and uh, people I work with downtown, you know, people go out for walks in the day or they have beautiful little puppies or or kids and get to meet them. That's where the magic happens downtown. And yeah, hopefully it's temporary. We talked a little bit before uh, we started the recording about the importance of language. And some people are starting to use um, houselessness and some people are using the word homelessness. Can you help me and other people who are listening in better understand as we talk about different types of people in our community that are lovely and wonderful and and humans?
2: Yeah, and I probably this probably dates back to being a journalist and and some of the changes in the CP style book that I thought were were jumped ahead to. So we had we could not call fishermen fishermen anymore. We had to call them fishers, and I remember thinking, well, a fisher is a little. Creature like a Martin, too. Now, I think clarity of language is really important. And the language, I always use this term, the language of the folk. You know, what are 90% of the people in Ebiton? How do they speak? And Rebecca, who worked for me, bless her heart, started to use the term houselessness. And I just said, Rebecca, I totally understand. And I think there's a really good sentiment and a reason. That people are using that, advocates are using that. But I said, we can't jump ahead of the folk because the danger of that language is that it's it's exclusive. We're in this special group, we know how to talk, we know the right language, and you don't. And so it gets, you know, I, I don't like using this word woke because I think it's, it disparages a lot of wonderful people. But it, the advocates will be ahead of the folk on some of this stuff. And I think we have to be really tolerant of people who will make the odd blunder in their language. So if somebody called, you know, I've noticed having been on the indigenous initiative that a lot of indigenous people will use the word Indian. And I would like freak out. Not in front of them, but in my mind, I'm going, oh my God, you can't say that word anymore. But they're not, you know, a lot of them aren't so worried about that stuff. But if, if somebody did say Indian or Aboriginal, and we know that Indigenous is the more genteel term that we're using nowadays, I think we just, you know, can we just let it be? If the person is kind and their intentions are good, why jump all over people because they're not using the absolute proper language so mariah if you want to say houselessness i will never correct you and i would hope that if i say homeless you would never correct me we're probably talking about the same part pop- as i understand the term houselessness refers to the fact they're not in a, a building they don't have a an address in a building but that something like Camp Win from a couple of years ago down in Rossdale, that that could be a home. So if they're living in that area, they're not homeless, they're houseless. So I get that. I think our goal should be to have those folks living safe and warm and dry with, if they need it, proper programming and food so that they can be healed and in the Indigenous community, healed by elders and others with their culture. So, well, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this anecdote. I, uh, my, they're doing the plumbing, the heating in my building right now. And I was out talking to some people about my bedroom at night has just been scorching. And I described it as Africa hot in my bedroom. And I got these funny looks and I went, hmm? And anyway, so apparently that was really incorrect somehow in, in the language of today to call something Africa hot. And as it was explained to me, the the woman said, well, it sounds really ignorant and you're not ignorant. So you shouldn't say that. But I've, you know, I've been running that through my head a lot, you know, like you can get so tetchy about these supposed slights of language that we're going to silence people. The other danger is, and I think this is more danger, is that people on the center left and left will drive a lot of good people to the other side by being too demanding, too, I hate to use the word, arrogant, but there is a certain amount of arrogance to, if you don't speak the way we want you to speak, then you're not part of the club. That that is my concern, is that there's this, I don't know, high-mindedness around language right now. There, CBC had a story recently about, you know, so we can't say blind spot, like you'll have to cut that out of your podcast. Me saying the word blind spot. And I'm, I, I really have to think a long time about that. But we're going to drive a lot of people away from advocacy for vulnerable people, vulnerable communities because we happen to use a term that was pretty broadly accepted by the folk.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you talking about the need for inclusivity over being right. I grew up with a mom that said it's it's better to be kind than to be right. and it's something that I try and live by because who, who wins when you're right? No nobody does. They're upset, you're upset nothing moves forward like language is important but also i love that song you say tomato i say tomato let's call the whole thing off but if we called it off it would break my heart i think if we live by those kind of rules in life and being kind first and moving towards common goals we're way better off well you you've brought up a few times well, quite a few times your passion for homelessness and moving that file forward uh, both before you were on council and while you're on council, and I'm sure now uh, in your next stages. Can you tell me a little bit about why you got so passionate about it and how it first hit your radar?
2: Well, I've had, um, and I have talked about this, I wanted to talk about it. One of my goals for running for council is to try to humanize politicians. And I don't, I don't know if I had any luck really, but I watched city councils over the years, and I got to know some of them pretty well, and I could see how they agonized over decisions, and some of them I saw them in tears. And yet we know that the public's pretty cynical about politicians, right? So, so I went into this with this lofty goal of trying to humanize politicians. In the first term, I talked about my own history with an anxiety disorder, which led to depression. So I had mental health issues. And then in the second term, because I was a little nervous about this, second term, I talked about how I'd been uh, 15 years sober. And, you know, my story in a nutshell, and it's true of a lot of people. They use substances to self-medicate, and I was—I was never really—I was never really bad with it, but bad enough that I knew I had to quit. My dad was an alcoholic, so so I came by my passion for it from my own lived experience, and so I started talking about that publicly, and with just the idea too that you know maybe somebody out there would go, "Holy smokes, he made it all the way to city council, and he had those issues." and it might give some hope out there. That was my only my only goal with that. So I have had a passion about that and I think the mental health and addictions issues are all over the homelessness issues, right? It's people who in a lot of cases grew up in homes so dysfunctional that they were left with deep and scarring trauma that they then self-medicated and that can be the the primary reason to get up every day is to use drugs or alcohol to to obliterate the pain you get, which is really a hard thing to describe how it feels to have constant sort of shrieking anxiety or or this sort of um, depression that leaves you feeling dead. So you self-medicate that. And, And we know that addiction's rampant. We know we have this opioid overdose crisis. Now, new terminology, drug poisoning. And I just think this is a healthcare issue and it's a mental health crisis. The healthcare is being offered intermittently, periodically, or not at all, on the streets with outreach and drop-in and some things. But were this anything else, we would not force them out onto the street. We would be bringing them into healthcare to look after them. You know, if I was the king of the world. We would have really good supportive housing facilities where people were brought in and at least for the first six month or year, if they were dependent on opioids, they would be getting pharmaceutical replacements that would work for them so they didn't have to be out on the street. Because most of our crime is related to the drug industry, if you will, and I mean the illicit drug industry. And a lot of these people do break-ins, theft, sell their bodies to get the money to buy drugs off criminal gangs. It's a really dysfunctional blight of a system in cities. So if we looked after those people with addictions, with a medical model, let the doctors decide, not the politicians, Mr. Kenny. we would not only save a lot of lives, we would not only reduce a lot of the impact, the side effects on communities and small business, And, man, did we hear about that when I was on council. Small business areas all over the city were being impacted negatively by the side effects of homelessness. But I think we would save tens of millions of dollars a year in a city like Edmonton on chasing our tail, sending out bylaws for encampments, sending out fire because there's a man down in an alley who's having an opioid. There's a drug poisoning. Overdose, police chasing everybody on this. You know, it's just it just sort of goes on and on and on. And emergency rooms, the courts filled up with folks. When I was on council, I had Dr. Francis Getty, pretty famous local doctor. He he works at least part time as an ER doctor at the Royal Alex. He approached me about we need housing. He said we're releasing people from hospital into homelessness, and we know. They'll be back very shortly. then I have Judge Couchard, who's the head of the mental health court, come to me and say, we need housing because we're releasing people from mental health court who've been in here on charges. And we know they'll be back because they don't have housing, yet they were coming to the level of government that has the least ability to pay for this housing. And it's really not social services and healthcare and housing are largely the responsibility of the province and the feds. And those two, you know, getting, hearing from Dr. Franceschetti and Judge Couchard, those are the two biggest systems and most costly systems for the province, criminal justice system and the healthcare system. And they were coming to us for help and it was just like, there was something wrong with that picture, but I, you know, and I, we did some outreach to the Kenny government, the federal government was actually pretty good. And that's how we're getting those five supportive housing facilities up and running pretty quick. But as far as I know, I don't know if the Kenny government has ever agreed to provide healthcare in those five supportive housing units. Is a philosophical problem here or an ideological problem that you either see these people as ill and wounded, which I do. They're ill and wounded. They need help. Or you see them as immoral and sinners, which some people do. I think that's a pretty, not only negative way of looking at things, but a self defeating way of looking at things. But I'm afraid that's what our provincial government sees. They sees they see people who are obviously criminal or immoral or something doing drugs. Man, it ain't that simple.
1: So there's so much going on to try and move this file. I know that there's so many different partners at the municipal level, whether they're in nonprofits or they're, they're working at the city. There's tons. healthcare, police, fire. How... How can we move the file forward? And what are some highlights of things that have been done that maybe people don't know about beyond the five projects?
2: Yeah, you know, so my office organized a workshop where we invited people, largely it was from the development community. And I I don't know, Mariah, if you attended that. It was like, we call it Made in Edmonton. I do. If we're not going to get funding from the province, if we're not going to get enough funding from the feds, and yet we have this homeless problem that is causing so much, so many issues for the homeless, but for all of us, how could we solve this? So there was a really good report written out of that by Sandy Hakala. And one of the the things that jumped out at me was a developer saying, let us build it. We're the experts. We know how to do this. We know how to do it cheaper, faster, better. And I'm Notch sure. it'll be interesting to see whether government will ever take that up. I was frustrated that the provincial government's now doing it sounds like a similar thing, and I think they need our report like I don't know if it would be a p three or if we would just maybe you could select certain developers who are willing to do it and the indication I think at the time was there are a lot of developers and business people in Edmonton who understand the gravity of the problem and want to be. Part of the solution so if they did it at lower margins or almost no margin which i think was the offer well then let's find a way to do that get out of their way and at the end the city purchases or leases or the provincial government purchases or leases a building that was done to spec of some spec like i took john day through ambrose place to let him have a look at that ambrose place is a very successful supportive housing facility in macaulay it's one of my favorite places in all of edmonton so that that interests me. And it's a way of, you know, I was in eight years and I don't know if I completely still understand government. There's so many. And I think Mariah and Ryan, you'd agree with me. Like there's so many fantastic people working in there.
1: There are, there are a lot of
2: yeah. So it's systems and it's philosophy and it's caution. I think, I think caution being the big part of it, right? Uh, afraid to really try new things, which reminds me uh, of a program that we launched where it was trying small social innovation, the recover project, just small inno- social innovation things. And if they failed, they failed. So what, you know, maybe you lost 10 or $15,000, which is not a small amount of money to anybody. But if you hit on something that really worked, the savings would be many, many, many folds over that. So, so so I think we need that. I think we need to look at, I mentioned perhaps office vacancy. We need to maybe look at some creative ways of doing affordable housing and supportive housing in B and or C class buildings. That's an interesting opportunity, I think. I think with the new towers as they get built and they're going to try to be basically stealing people out of the old walk-ups. So what are the old walk-ups? How much, you know, there might be some that with a bit of investment could easily be affordable or supportive housing too. But I think we need to stay on this. But what I have seen of this new council is that will not be an issue. I think it's a really socially conscious council in fact i think some developers are gonna pull their hair up i think
1: (laughs) oh i am so excited about this new council i think they'll move forward some of the legacy things that uh, your council worked on and then they've got exciting ideas i've only met with a few of them so far and uh most of them while they were running in their campaign they're a great group they're they're going to give people a run for their money for sure but they're going to i think they're going to flip Edmonton a bit on its head and i think we'll be better for it
2: yeah i feel a little bit jealous that i hadn't run again you know but then ann stevenson wouldn't be on council so i think it is a really interesting group they'll have a couple there's a couple of characters in there i could see upsetting the apple cart but hopefully over time you'll learn to You know, you leave your ego at the door and just do good work. Right. But I I, yeah, I don't think, you know, I know what the mayor's focus on anti-racism. That's a that's pretty key issue. It's a tough one, though. You know, some of these things like poverty, eliminating poverty or eliminating racism. Those are probably generational issues. We need to work on them. We can't forget them. We can't put them off to the next council, but they're hard, hard problems. Uh, And I'm happy to see them taking that on. You know, I just think the the collective IQ went up a few points. (laughs) Uh, With all due respect to the mayor, uh, to the former mayor, who is one of the brightest guys I know. Um, But there's a few others that, you know, they're really bright, committed people. And uh, it's going to be really cool to watch. But I also think some of the developers who got away with some stuff during my time on council—I may have voted against some of their proposals—I uh, don't think they're going to get as easy a ride. You know, we need to continually raise the bar on the quality of design. I think now, if the if the pushback is that will make it unaffordable, and let us show you why, that's okay. But I think there's been a lot of BS peddled over the years about, I think good design does not have to cost way more. And I think Edmonton, you know, I think this has been part of the problem, having been, you know, in this city for 55 years of my 62 or something. Good was good enough. For too long. Putting up structures that were not designed to last for very long, that does not interest me. I think we need to build our our design and our buildings and our communities, our parks, our recreation facilities need to meet the quality and caliber of this city, which I think is amazing. And I think if you look at some of the developments the city has done in libraries, they're amazing. The design is amazing of some of our libraries and rec facilities. So I just think we need to ask the private sector to hit that bar.
0: I was just going to say I love the Capilano Library, um, nestled in the uh, in the ravine or against the trees. There, I think it's gorgeous. I agree with you. I want to hear your thoughts on Stanley Milner, the Battle Tank.
2: I think the original design was better. You know, I think there was because of budget. It lost a little bit of its sheen. Uh, I don't mind it though. You know, the art gallery is a bit weird and the library is now a bit weird, but I don't mind weird. I just don't like blah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think we've seen too much blah. So the Milner is interesting. CBC pissed me off when they did their story on us. It. like, it's been under construction right out right out your window, and now you're doing a story because it hit social media. Give me a break! I got I got raked over the coals on CBC one day uh, about it. I think it's interesting on the outside, but on the inside, it's friggin' amazing. Anybody who hasn't taken the opportunity to walk through it, go up and see what's going on and what's available in the maker space. You know, take the time some Saturday, get down there and have a uh, have a look around the place. I, the makerspace, the folks up there—they'll give you a little bit of a tour. I think I'm going to take up sewing. Um, <laughs> who knows what I'll do next? But uh, but yeah, it's, I so design is an interesting thing. To me, it doesn't necessarily, It can be challenging. Design can challenge you. Design can. Can, can split opinion, I'm okay with that. Like, I love the Telestome. I love it because, in part because it really upsets some people, but the Telestome, I always imagine some Americans, they've gone to Calgary, they're driving up here, they're going to go through Edmonton, they're going to go to Jasper, and they drive by that and they go, what the hell? They've got public art near a bridge in the River Valley? How weird is that? Weird is good. So I think, let me even go further and say the Stanley Milner is a bit weird looking, and I love that.
0: Awesome. Awesome answer, and I couldn't agree with you more. The I, I think what's on the inside of the Stanley Milner, like what you said, definitely makes the space, and it could not be in a better spot amongst all those other weird shaped and looking buildings, in my opinion. So I agree with you 100%. Um, I want to transition into talk about something that Mariah and I are huge proponents of, I think you're a huge proponent of it as well, the city plan. And it talks a little bit about design. I want to um, focus on um, back to the houselessness, homelessness discussion. Does the city plan address that issue um, in your opinion? And then what are some of the keys to implement from the city plan to further address the issue?
2: This is where it gets perhaps a bit technical for me, but what I certainly pushed on, and I don't know if we're there yet, is when we're looking at area structure plans and neighborhood structure plans, space needed to be allotted for supportive housing, I think, because our goal is to have supportive housing spread throughout the city. So I'm not sure we have that writ. I'm trying to remember if I brought that up. I think that's a really important thing that we plan it like we plan fire halls and schools. Because I think sometimes it's easier that it's at least planned there, and and not a surprise for people. And I mean, I think what was it, Twilliger Town? That one from a few years back, where there was a huge flap about it. It was, as far as I remember, sort of inside the community, fairly near a school. And people can have these false notions, and there's nobody more excitable than parents that a homeless person is going to attack their kids. And so you have to be a You have to be aware of where you would locate some of these things. I'm not saying that we, you know, locate them on Baffin Island or anything. I just mean that on transportation routes, maybe near something that's more commercial or something and not tuck it inside the white picket fence homes or something where, you know, you've got a real steep uphill uh, climb with people. But that's, that's the kind of planning that I think needs to be done ahead of time. And I'm not sure the plan does enough of that either. The other thing I would say about that is, I don't remember if it's written in there to the extent that I would like. And if it's not, that would be an oversight of mine. And if it's an oversight of mine, because I think there would have been support, it's another peril of that role is having a hundred files in the air at any time. It's hard to be really good at it. And I admired my colleagues like, um, Andrew Knack and Ben Henderson and and the mayor in particular, who were so good at that sort of technical stuff. When it was before council, you might've seen me sucking my thumb because I was, I was stressed out, (laughs) but, uh, But generally speaking, a plan that says we can't keep growing outwards and we need to focus way more on infill. I mean, and and 15 minute communities and more focus on on alternative transportation and active transportation. You know, I read some of these stories nowadays about people freaking out about the oil industry and how Alberta is being screwed over or something. And I think Has anybody not noticed that the planet is burning? Has anybody not noticed that? Do you not remember 38 degrees last summer? I do. I live in a small apartment and I was being parbroiled at that (laughs) point, you know. Or, Or the atmospheric rivers hitting the lower mainland and Newfoundland. Like, we have got to take this seriously. I would get... Real pushback from commuters. I mean, there's always this tension between the core of the city and commuters. I get that, but you know our stupid bike lanes and stuff. And I remember one I just saying to one guy, "Climate change," <laughs> and it was like, "Ah." Oh, it was maybe maybe that was around LRT. We get into these fights about who gets to use the carriage way of the road, right? Who, who deserves it more? And we totally forget about issues like traffic safety, pedestrian safety, making walkable beautiful streets with trees and, and climate change. Like it's just like some people want an unobstructed commute. That seems to be like their highest goal in life. If I live in a city where I can have a quick, easy commute, I'm happy. Well, that to me is number 10 on my, or 15 or 20 on my list of important things. I want people to be able to get into the downtown easily. Absolutely. But I also want you to want to come here and be willing to put up with a bit of traffic or be willing to pay for a ride on the LRT because your kids or your friends want to go to that thing downtown, which is really cool. That's what I want, that the demand or the attraction be so high that the commute be less of a, an issue.
1: Yeah, I got to spend some time with a small business owner a couple of weeks ago and we were having a discussion about her business and at the end, uh, and she wasn't a part of the development world and she asked me, like, why do we need infill? And she's like, I, I understand it's a hot thing in the city, but why do we need it? And so I I walked her through what complete communities kind of look like and how businesses can thrive with density and how transit is successful with density and how schools are successful and kids get to actually go and play and walk to school with density. Uh, And it creates some traffic and it creates some bike commuters and some pedestrians and people rolling on skateboards and uh, whatever other kind of... (laughs) fun things that I am not coordinated enough to do. And at the end of it, she was like, wow, how do I get more people to know this? How do I get people to understand that we're all part of an ecosystem? And I'm like, well, it's my job. I'm not doing it that well, (laughs) clearly. Well,
2: maybe we'll talk about that another time. Maybe I'll have some ideas for you.
1: Please, I would love that. I think it's such an important part of uh, us growing up as a city and as neighborhoods change for them to help understand why it's happening helps to like open up the dialogue around construction and how it's messy and the benefits and the, you know, the Richie markets that will pop up around communities. The school around Richie is getting kids and other mature neighborhoods aren't getting kids in the same way because they want to live around that market. Those, those people want to live there. And so we need to be able to demonstrate that to people.
2: In a lot of ways... We're still really a young city and we grew out with, you know, our our basic pattern was exploding outwards to handle the growth, the rapid growth. You know, I have had that discussion with heritage advocates, right? We're a young city and people didn't care. It was like utility was almost the highest value. Does the building work? And occasionally there were some really nice... Buildings built, but you know, and a utility caused a lot of old warehouses to be knocked down in the greater downtown because that was it was then the taxes would be cheaper, and it's a really complex thing. And I think we need people like you, Ryan and Mariah to be informing people of what's at stake, you know, what's at stake when we don't do infill well, uh, when, or when we don't value an old building, like all our exchange was, was, uh, adaptively reused, you know, whatever it is. So, you know, that goes back to my interest in design and mental health and, and isolation. I guarantee you those places draw people out of their homes, into an area where they bump into each other. I think the dog park in high-density areas is really important too. We need to give people reasons to leave their apartment and their home and bump into each other. And I think there are parks in this city that are almost always empty. And that's another issue that really interests me around how do we get people into those parks? Like, you know, Horlack's busy. I think it's a busy park, but I've seen a bunch of other ones just now. You know, I haven't done a study on this, but it's my assumption they're pretty empty a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this, too, because I grew up around some neighborhoods where the parks were busy and some that weren't. And then I've been lucky enough to travel around the world and where I've seen really successful parks at all times of the year and all times of the day is when the, air, the uses around it are creative. So it's not just low-density single-family homes that flag the perimeter of the park. There may be a little commercial spot or some pharmacy or a doctor's office, a little restaurant that uh, has a patio on the park even and some cool playground stuff for different ages and uh, and different types of people. But it goes back to the we, gr- we developed in one style for... 100 years, it was a very like, this is how we do it. We we segregate uses. We segregate the types of things that we do. We segregate the types of people based on age, demographic, race. We created these really problematic spaces. Uh, and now to go back and, and say, let's get creative. Let's get messy. Let's bring lots of different people in here. Let's bring the Oliver Exchange back to life uh, and take it from this beautiful heritage building into something new. It, it takes creativity, it takes risk, it takes, it takes great communities and great builders working together. But sorry, that's my <laughs> side rant of the day.
2: I think you made some really good points there. And it's like Paul Kane Park on 121st Street in Oliver is prob- was probably way busier the last couple seasons. Because of Oliver Exchange, you could go in there, you could get a coffee, you could get something to eat, you could get an ice cream take it over to the park and sit. Or if you went to the park, you could walk over to Oliver Exchange, get something to drink or eat to enhance that experience, right? And I think I hate to pick on Borden Park. You know, Borden Park probably needs an ice cream place and a coffee shop towards its, its west end there, which I think is really quite quiet. And uh and maybe that's just something the city has to look at is and maybe they could be sort of maybe you wouldn't have to build, but you could have um shipping containers drop to do that or something and then just lease them and really inexpensively. Do it as a pilot, you know, see if people would because I think there's quite a bit of parking there actually too. So you park, you take your kids, get an ice cream or a coffee, whatever, and then go enjoy the park. Um, because I think it's pretty empty a lot. Now there's a pool and i think the pool's is busy but it's the rest of the park that i mean it's just like holy smokes
0: every time i go to borden park i think i see more coyotes than i do people and that's kind of unfortunate um it's a beautiful park though i i do really like it i think it could serve a really interesting function when northlands uh redevelops and changes a little bit but um i just wanted to chime in and talk about uh programming programming of parks I think is super interesting so we tend to put soccer fields and playgrounds on every single park that we build and develop that's not really the needs of that individual neighborhood I'd love to see community leagues get a little bit more involved in the planning of their park spaces I I live in McKernan I'm within walking distance of probably 10 soccer fields but there's also the the most used park in McKernan is is McKernan Park and it's got a skate park and splash pad and playground. And it's just this tiny little sliver off a back alley. But that is the most popular park. And it's, it's still like there's, there's kids out there building snowboard ramps to use it in the winter on the, uh, on the skate park. So I'm a big fan of, um, seems a little bit on brand for the planner to talk about planning. But uh, yeah, parks, planning and, uh, and programming spaces more so than we have been in the past.
2: So there's that term, like do you ever that park you just described with the skate park or that? do you ever just go down and sit and watch people?
0: All the time, I have a dog that uh, that loves chasing a ball in that field and uh, loves watching the skateboarders for sure.
2: So there was at one point in Paul Kane, no water in it, and the skateboard guys were using using the, the bowl there. It was interesting to watch. I think we're drawn to people, and so somehow you've got to get people in there. And that'll attract more people. And I think there's nothing worse than an empty park. It just looks, I don't know if it's perilous or just lonely, right? And so I think, yeah, I think piloting some things, but I think, you know, I think there should be some commercial there a little bit so that people... And again, you might have to pilot. You might have to subsidize it as a city. Drop a shipping container in there to have a coffee and ice cream and a hot dog or something. Or, you know, God forbid, it's they're selling wine and beer. They seem to allow that now. So, or cannabis right on the park. Oh God! (laughs) Thank God I'm not on council. Uh, That would have generated a few emails. But yeah, because you know, I always thought things like the chess board tables, and maybe even a, a sand volleyball pitch on the uh, on the park might help too. But I do think urban experience meets park experience, that is probably part of it. Horolak, they take their own stuff down, although uh, Kalina is down in Horolak Park now too, so that probably helps. But anyways, I want you to you two to solve that. Invest all your own money in it, and then I'll come wherever it is. <laughs> Perfect. Well,
1: I, Yeah, I think if we can convince uh, Council, Ryan and I will take up the charge that public-private partnerships work. Show them, just let's we'll just walk them down to Paul Kane. We'll, we'll buy them one of the chicken sandwiches. They can go to the washroom that's available to the public. And there's lovely twinkle lights, and hopefully we'll sell them on it.
2: <laughs> when, do we, when do we bring up the fact that I'm a founding member of IDEA?
1: I would love to talk about the fact that you're a founding member of Idea. Because you've talked about in this episode quite a few times, you being pushing things forward. And 10 years ago, you were like, I think there's something here. Why don't you why don't you tell me about it?
2: I don't remember much. I don't have much of a story to tell, Mariah. But <laughs> uh, there was some events. Uh, it was maybe when, maybe... So what year would it have been?
1: So it's, they started talking about it 2012 and then they officially made it a thing in 2013.
2: So that was probably, yeah. So 2012, I might've been, it might've been because I've run for council and Jarrett Campbell, I got to know. And so then I got in that, that group, taken Martin Drysdale and others, and then probably got in, invited to the inaugural event. And I don't know if I had to pay five bucks for a membership or something. <laughs> but I laughed when the journal did a recent story about uh, influence in the election. And in fact, that uh, was it uh, Ann Stevenson or Ashley Salvador was a member of IDEA? And I thought, yeah. Anyways, that was a little blown out of proportion, that whole story in the journal about influence. Um, I, I will... Try to do this quickly, but I, you know, the first year, 2013, I think we raised over a hundred thousand dollars, a lot of money, and a lot of that would have come from the development community. One of the very first decisions we made as a council was around the Edmonton Tower, and there were a number of towers that were and developers that were vying for all those city employees, right, and that big lease. And there was a fairness advisor that went through that because we ended up selecting Daryl Cates' proposal, which everybody knew was going to be controversial. So you had to, but in doing that and in voting for that, I knew that a number of companies and people that had donated to my campaign were were being shut out, and, it, and that made me actually feel really good about the process. And I never got any grief. Grief from any of those developers, and I and I remember giving Staples sh- shit over this one time uh, about this notion of developer developer influence, and I just said, you know what, you want to know what's what's what is really affecting is when there's twenty or thirty constituents sitting in council chambers, glaring at you. That is intimidating. Turning down a development from a developer who contributed to my campaign never bothered me a bit. Either the project was worthy of support or it wasn't. And I thought the story the journal did that mentioned idea as being some sort of power broker in town, influencing, negatively influencing, City councilors was it was you know knowing what I knew I, I it did not reflect well on the story that was written it did not did not look good so
1: it did rattle my feathers Ryan can attest to that he had talked he had talked to me that day but uh, at the end I decided. If they think that we're passionate enough about the city to help, to help people get elected, to help passionate people who want to sit on council and take up that hard job, that's great. That's all it is. I get to work for a group of people who are pas- like so passionate about Edmonton. Yeah, they're going to contribute. They're going to contribute time and resources to make it awesome.
2: Uh, I know that I'm very proud to be a founding member of IDEA. And never once did I feel like there was any untoward influence. It was just that idea had good ideas. (laughs) Uh, And the one that I particularly liked was when you were digging more and more into training builders.
1: Yeah. Our education program.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like that made sense to me. And I thought the city needed to really help and be on board with that. So so yeah, you guys, do, you do good shit.
1: Yeah, you didn't know, but uh, Ryan actually is our lead teacher for the program. So we do five days, design, d- uh, development, permit building, perp- permit construction, and then community relationships and communications. And so Ryan is our, our overarching teacher, is the planner uh, for every day, and then we bring in experts uh, on top of Ryan, uh, both from the city and the industry to help. And so over 60 people, companies have gone through it, and you were a big advocate in helping us bring together faster permits and certainty and education. So thank you. That was, it was a really important program to me.
2: The city has a story to tell about, you know, when, when. You know, all these complaints about delayed times for permits, there's another side to the story, right? And that's improperly done applications and stuff. So the more education that goes into that, the quicker everything should be for everybody. So it totally made total sense to me.
1: So we've talked about a lot today and I want to be conscious of your time because... Even though you've moved on to a new job, I know you were insanely busy. The last thing we do before we sign off is a call to action. So... What would you like to say to the community that listens in?
2: Yeah, and this isn't, you know, maybe tangentially related to what I was saying earlier about language and true inclusiveness. So this is uh, something that I picked up years ago, and I didn't learn it. I think a lot of people just learn it naturally. And Mariah, I think you said something earlier about what your mom told you. So what I've learned is if I am in service and kind to other people, I have a better day. And there's ways to practice that all the time in traffic, letting somebody in, or if you get caught off thinking, well, maybe that person has an emergency, or if you're going to a convenience store to buy a chocolate bar, you can practice being kind to the person behind the counter. You can practice being kind all day long. And it was a a psychologist said this to me years ago. It was like, well, you know, Scott, life is done with mirrors. And I didn't get it for a little while. But the point is, what we put out is, tends to be reflected back at us. So if we're kind and in service to other people, two things happen, I think. One, tends to be reflected back at, back at us. But I also think there's a bit of self-pride that goes with that. A little bit of sense of fulfillment of being a good person. You know, money will not make you happy. A lot of things that shiny baubles get advertised to us, and then we think they're going to make the, make us happy. It's just we need meaning in our life, and we need loving relationships. And I, since I've been not on council, it's been one of my goals to be reaching out to old friends regularly and having coffee dates with them because I missed them. Because I was obsessed about being a city councilor and trying to do it at a high level, which was my own craziness, but. Yeah, and, and I hope that anybody who has issues right now in a pandemic about extreme sense of loneliness or mental health issues, anxiety, depression, that they seek help or they meet me at the library because I'm hanging around the Milner quite a bit because it's a weird and wonderful building. And I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know a better place to end than that. I think we all need to go see the uh, weird and wonderful buildings of Edmonton and be kind and give service to others.
2: Can I thank you two for having me on? You know, I think one of the things, <clears throat> I had a couple of weeks of grief, I think, after I left council. One of them is we all have egos. I have an ego and I felt like I wasn't a, you kind of, oh, I'm not very important anymore. I'm not a VIP and was feeling a little sad for myself and I, I, that is gone. but. To be asked onto this podcast is a, is a privilege. And I just wanted you to know that I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, this, it is such a privilege for us. We were nervous that you would say no. Um, and we were so grateful when you said yes. Your, your experience, your time, you are an amazing person. And, and we're lucky to have you.
2: That was very kind of you to say that. I'll just accept that. Thank you. You too. Both of you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Scott.
1: Well, I know I say this every episode, but that was amazing. This was an episode that I listened to much more in the cuts uh, than I usually do with our episodes because I just really liked the conversation. It was really great to hear from a counselor who has seen it all from multiple different perspectives uh, and to come out and talk about how important urban design is and mental health and isolation and how it's all about planning our city is all about planning and i grew up not realizing that cities were planned i don't know what i thought <laughs> happened with cities but it was just it was really beautiful to hear him talk about how important urban design mental health is and iso- and reducing isolation is in cities Uh, because often we talk about privacy and the need for privacy above all else. And I don't think that builds great cities. I think that builds very isolating and lonely cities where you don't get to meet your neighbors.
0: Yeah, I could go into a very deep dive of planning history and tell you just how long we've been planning cities. It's longer than you think, but yeah, I was a I was a little bit starstruck when uh, <laughs> when we first got him on the episode. I don't think I spoke for the first you know five or ten minutes. I just kind of like watched him and yeah. But I loved the conversation and uh, I kind of joked about it afterwards with him offline. But uh, he puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. And he's a very 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 intelligent and very real guy. So it was a it was an awesome conversation. I also agree with you. I love that. Uh, Uh, he he talked that it's all about planning. Is that something um, directly from the idea playbook or? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more that it's all about planning. I think that's a little bit of a biased take, but yeah.
2: Well,
1: and I really liked that uh, when you started talking about downtown and the revitalization of downtown, I know I went into that story about uh, my downtown experience 12 years ago and how it wasn't the same as now living downtown uh, and like the strides Edmonton's taken. But I I also think that the park downtown is going to be a huge catalyst project. Even last week at council, there was a new project going for... Uh, Rezoning for an application, literally right across the street from the park. Like it'll be such a really like such a great project, and people want to build around it. People want to live around this like beautiful new park. I know, I spent tons of time at Paul Kane over the pandemic, uh, which is a park in uh, Edmonton central neighborhood. I think you spent a lot of time at parks. It's, I think it'll be just as great as Rogers.
0: I I agree and. I a couple years ago, there was a um, the city put on a downtown parks walking tour or whatever. So when I was still living downtown, I did the tour. And there's way more planned park spaces than I thought there was downtown. I thought we were going to go to Yeah, like Paul Kane, Alex Dakota Park, and then I would like have a hot dog and go home. But there's a ton of parks, they have a master plan for downtown, their problem is funding. And you know i think scott was talking about in the episode here like we got to get some of these parks off the ground and get the public spaces going and the rest will kind of follow my big thing has always been that people need to live downtown it's key to downtown revitalization we can't just have you know the people come from nine to five monday to friday and then they're gone. We need people actually living downtown. People like you, Mariah. So what what are you seeing? You you made mention of it during the episode, but what are you seeing downtown over the last couple of years?
1: I know we talked about the library. I think that brings people downtown. Uh, the ledge grounds uh, brings people downtown. The festivals that we uh, have outside of a pandemic brings people downtown, which is really exciting. I think More and more people that I know are getting pregnant, uh, aside from yourself and and staying downtown for a bit, which is great because I also I love dogs and kids and I saw someone with a cat on a leash downtown. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So I think you need all the weird and wonderful buildings and all the weird and wonderful people that will allow us to open up a school like. Uh, we had talked about in the episode and make a successful downtown where it feels like that complete community that we're all you know working towards not just in downtown Edmonton but all over the city
0: yeah I agree shout out to my wife for making me move south of the river and leave downtown but uh (laughs) yeah it was it was a challenge for me to do that and the the condo that I was living in at the time it was a two-bedroom and fairly large it's an it's an old building like you don't really get a lot of those anymore but there was tons of families that lived in our building and we were close enough to the river valley that uh, the kids went and played in the river valley not by themselves or whatever but <laughs> creating spaces for families was was really important I uh, I know on the episode with Chelsea we talked about the school of daycare kids or whatever that uh, parades through downtown which I always loved watching like these little kids in like this really urban setting walking to <laughs> walking to a small playground or a park we need more of those more of the kids more of the parks more of everything I know Scott talked about you know parks and bike lanes and LRT and Schools and experiences, and just reasons to leave your home, which I think is really crucial. Like our urban spaces are are just as crucial as people living downtown. But yeah, when are you leaving downtown?
1: Ah, uh, I'm here for a while. I feel like nice. the the downtown that uh, he and so many other people envision that we're working towards creating that small town feel that feels warm and humane. I think we're getting there, and that's really exciting. So. No, downtown will have to deal with me for a while. Uh, I'm here for a <laughs> while. <laughs> but let's also talk about Edmonton's housing issue. So nearly 50,000 Edmonton households spend more than what they can afford on rent, which is a huge problem. I know usually we talk about affordability of home ownership, but rent is a huge part of uh, being able to live in different spaces. Also, 2,600 Edmontonians are experiencing homelessness or houselessness, including 200 kids, which is devastating and something that like Edmontonians need to shine a light on and focus on. And any given night, about 653 people sleep outside. That's why you and I wanted to have Counselor McKean on because He's able to highlight the need for that change. I know him, former Mayor Don Iveson, and former Councillor Walters really made that a focus over the past eight years. Uh, And I am looking forward to what this new council does to push that file continuously forward. We also talked about five supportive housing units that are coming in Edmonton. Uh, I did a fact check on it. We're going to have 210 units coming online, which is fantastic that's just such as a small dent for what we need so put it on your wish list this year have santa bring it down the chimney
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i hope he has enough room in his sleigh for that for sure so um we talked about uh i think i can't remember who asked the question but if homelessness was written into the city plan directly uh it is it's one of the main targets actually that at a city of two million people there is no chronic homelessness anymore so um they have direct policy in there as well, some of which um, I think are very good. So one is to put amenities throughout the city for people experiencing homelessness. This is anything from public washrooms, um, services that are kind of necessary for that, as well as the housing the housing component, partnering with organizations and private sector on ending it. And then the, the biggest one here is functional zero into homelessness. So this is not saying that, you know, homelessness is just going to be completely eliminated. I think uh, the city plan does a good job of identifying that that's Probably an impossible dream, but what they want is to have a system in place where if someone experiences homelessness for even a night or a couple nights or something, we have systems and responses in play that can deal with it so that it doesn't become a chronic or recurring uh, issue, so I know that's some very high-level policy, but that's exactly what the city plans all about. So um, it definitely, I am, I was happy to uh, to look into that and uh, find that it's actually written directly into there as a main target. You said something in the episode that I really needed to fact check. You talked about Ritchie School and how enrollment is increasing. Now, I used to live in Ritchie as well, and uh, I know that that school actually, the the beautiful old one that uh, couldn't be saved, was transformed into a beautiful new one that's now actually a francophone school. Um, it's the first francophone junior high school in western Canada so only junior high students and I looked into it because I wanted to prove you wrong but you were right the last three years, enrollment has been going up in that school. It's kind of incredible. The best part about it, though, students—if you look—if you look up uh, the uh, Joseph Moreau, I think—and it's uh, if you look up Google reviews of it, students are leaving just horrific Google reviews of their teachers, <laughs> which I find hilarious. Um, but yes, you were right. Enrollment is definitely going up.
1: That is amazing. I—I I don't know if you had rate right by prof when you were going to school, but it seems like they've taken. the that format and moved it to
0: Google, which way more of a public, uh, public forum now. Yeah. Lots of one star reviews on the school just because of some teacher that had a hard assignment. It's, it was amazing to research. Um, we, we asked about where supportive housing should go. This is, um, we see this all the time in council, you know, supportive housing gets proposed in a neighborhood residents of that neighborhood come out and say, we are completely in support of supportive housing, but not in our neighborhood. So where should supportive housing go? in your opinion, Mariah?
1: I think it needs to go everywhere. I think it needs to be around places where people can move around. So I wouldn't want to see it where there was like very limited access to transit or different uh, services that they might need. I am a part of a system that can help that, but there are smarter people than me. So I would lean on them to make those decisions like you. (laughs) <laughs> what do you oh. think?
0: <laughs> well, bless your heart. I agree with you that it, it needs to go everywhere. Um, I actually live near one right now. on uh, It's on the same block and it's kind of a scary looking building. They have like shutters on the windows and uh, it looks very kind of enclosed. It's a, it's a supportive house right on our street. I don't like, we never really have any interactions with them, positive or negative at all, but they've completely integrated right onto our block. I didn't even know that there was one until I was uh, walking through the neighborhood and knocking on doors for for some other stuff. But anyways, and then I used to live when I was in Ritchie, I used to live near the transitional house that they uh, put into one of the where, oh, old abandoned warehouses on, I think it was 75th Avenue and 100th Street. When the city approached the Ritchie Community League, we went to that meeting to talk about it. The majority of residents in Ritchie were very pleasant about it. So it was, you know, it was, we had a lot of support for it from from a neighborhood perspective. And when they integrated, we didn't notice anything. Crime didn't go up. The usual things that you associate with these types of things did not go up. We barely noticed that it was there and we were like three blocks away. So where should it go? Everywhere. And close to those services that the city plan is going to put in place.
1: hundred percent. Yeah, because... That's just awesome. That's awesome that the community was welcoming. Uh, It seems like they have taken Scott's advice of being in service and being kind. And we could all do that, especially this holiday season. Yeah, it's it's time to wrap up for the year, which is so sad. But we, you and I, I think we both have big plans. Somebody has bigger plans than me over the holidays. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to have a few weeks with just family and lots of food.
0: Yeah, Mariah is referring to me. The next time you hear my voice, I will sound a million times more tired because I will have a newborn. Um, so we're going to have some we're going to have some different holidays. You're going to have lots of food and family and I'm going to have a newborn that I'm uh, trying to figure out how to to take care of and that kind of thing so it'll be it'll be a, a different holiday for both of us for sure but yeah this was an exciting journey over the past i mean year that we've been trying to put this together but for sure the last like couple months actually getting it off the ground and talking to people and look at us now we got a former counselor on the episode so yeah our first guest in the new year will be my my new daughter but <laughs> beyond that yeah we'll get some more good guests and uh, and keep this ball rolling so yeah i think we just want to say happy holidays to everybody
1: yeah uh your new daughter can give us the scoop on what it's like to be in the uh ryan household over the holidays yes. what's your what's your bad eating habits <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> what kind of holiday movies you like
0: <laughs> i don't think that's what the listeners want to hear they want to hear her perspective <laughs> on you know the lrt and how she feels about bike lanes and urban issues you know urban issues
1: oh well thanks so much ryan and happy holidays
0: you too